listening to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, and K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM.
We're talking today with Dr. Beth Hawes, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Nevada at Reno School of Medicine. Dr. Hawes also works on raising awareness of climate mental health impacts through writing, presentations, and advocacy with the Climate Psychiatry Alliance, where she is a co-founder. Welcome to the Digital Divide, Dr. Beth. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. I can't do this interview without talking about current events because we're <laughs> we're in an extraordinary time. Um, it's historical. It's um, destructive. It's it's a lot of different things. It's not just one thing. Um, it's it's fascinating, uh, you know, to observe from a distance and um, frightening and stressful uh, to experience firsthand. Um, the environmental, psychological, and spiritual effects of living in a time of plague. Is it okay with you that I use the word plague interchangeably with pandemic? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. When when I look at historical plagues, um, with the exception of Ebola, because that is kind of in its class of its own in my mind, um, you know, we have the most technology, the best logistics and existing science than we've had in any other pandemic in history. And I think about how even a hundred years ago and further back, you know, due to limited communications and illiteracy, millions of people didn't know or understand what was even happening. What do you think it means to people to be so much more cognizant and informed in an age of pandemic? Well, I think it's, a, first of all, it's a great question. I mean, there's a wonderful story about Gunnison, Colorado, which uh, cut themselves off at the Gunnison Pass in the uh, 1918 pandemic. Um, and they actually had zero ca cases, right? And they've struggled to beat their record in this one. They haven't been able to do it because they had a student come to their junior college, apparently, or something um, that, that, that brought the virus to them. But certainly that isolation has been really quite different and so we have people now who are you know able to read about so many different things like this week the new york times had something on a questions on pulse oximeters and which finger should you wear it on and all these different things that are related to the technology i think that on the one hand that's a wonderful thing for people because they can really get a lot of information and information is control. You know, it gives you a much better sense of having a handle on things. But it can be tricky if you can't place that information in context, right? So one of the things we saw with the hydrochloroquine um, problem was that people grabbed onto the idea that it might be a helpful drug. Any other things that uh, that a doctor might think about in in thinking about whether that medication is going to be good to actually use. Um, Something similar came up this morning. One of the drugs that's shown up on the list of medications that may be helpful for COVID is uh, chlorpromazine, which is Thorazine, which is a really old antipsychotic. Um, and you know, if that turns out to be a helpful drug for COVID, that'll be quite a surprising thing. Um, but you know, Thorazine comes with a whole sort of host of like super sedating effects and potential long-term motor side effects and things like that. So, I guess you know. A little information is not always a good thing. A lot of information is a good thing if you have a context, and um, and without context, it can really overwhelm you. And I think that's what you see with people that are, you know, watching the news four or five hours a day um, and losing track of the context in in which they're getting this information. 
right, we can be informed in a way that we never were before so that we, we can know what works or what's working or what's not working. We can know all of these things. And they, they give, like you said, they empower us uh, to be able to make decisions. Uh, for instance, the decision to you know, isolate or the decision to wear a mask or gloves or not to, you know, but it's a decision maybe because you don't believe it or maybe because you resent having to make um, a, a change in in your routine um, or you just resent authority telling you what to do. You think it um, imposes on your freedoms. Uh, but all that information, it, it allows us to make decisions. Um, but then it's hard for people to make those decisions. I think it can cause a lot of anxiety um, in, you know, you have the ignor ignorance is bliss, which I don't really believe that ignorance is bliss, but <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do you think that knowing more makes it harder to modify regular habits and activities? Uh, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I do, actually. I mean, I think, you know, what you're talking about is fun. It's like, you know, this hysterical quality that we have that the things that we get anxious about invade our whole consciousness and frequently spread among the group. Um, you know, so it is hard to sort of suppress that anxiety. And in this case, the anxiety about COVID is a kind of sort of low-grade, continuous traumatic stress. But I don't think the information itself is what does that. Right. I think it's the anxiety associated with the problem. How does the danger and isolation, you know, associated with this pandemic affect adults who are already impacted by past traumas that, you know, they've been living with and hopefully working with, you know, to manage? Um, this seems to just be like an arrow through the heart for people dealing with trauma already. It's like when you when you have trauma frequently you live your life um kind of in a worst case scenario um way and and this is kind of the worst possible thing so how does that work for you know what what should people do if they um fall into that category yeah well, and you know i think it's it's interesting it, I, I think you know it's it's waiting for the other shoe to drop, which which is what you're talking about, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in this case, that can happen to anybody, really. I mean, you know, you can be somebody who has tremendous privilege or things that are, you know, wonderful going on in your life, even if you don't feel that you have privilege per se, um, and be frightened to lose them, right? Um, and in some ways, I think that that people who have not had trauma are more vulnerable. Um, in this regard right now because it's a shock to the system that they could be, you know, taken out just as easily as somebody else, that they're not protected in the ways that they've always been. Um, and I think that's what a lot of Americans are kind of waking up to, right, is a lot of things that we're used to protecting us, our medications, you know, our, our government, our doctors are not as available as they usually would be. I think for people with trauma, um, it kind of cuts both ways, and it depends a lot on what your previous trauma was. Right? So if your previous trauma was losing somebody that you cared about deeply in a hospital or from an illness, um, then this may, may be a more difficult thing for you. 
your previous trauma was extreme poverty and now you're facing poverty again um, on the one hand it may make you more vulnerable but can, it can also help you be sort of more at ease with what's happening i had a wonderful patient who said to me in the very first few days you know oh this is no problem you know i'm ready for things to change at the drop of the hat all the time because that's what happened when i was growing up you know i've always got a sleeping bag in the car i've always got food packed in the car and and so for for some people it fits into the thing that they've been coping with for a very long time very successfully anyways and i think they have things to teach us um, it depends how triggered you are it depends how really aroused your nervous system is and i think that's that's the place where people that have ongoing post-traumatic anxiety are more vulnerable is that their nervous systems are already so sort of hyper-reactive um, that that things that come along that are upsetting now can just kind of tip them over the edge of an ability to cope. Is there anything that people in that situation who fall into that, you know, category, uh, anything that they can do to relieve some of that anxiety? You know, this is temporary, but the days are long. So there's lots of things they can do. Um, you know, meditation helps, um, self-care helps, staying in the moment helps, focusing on what you're trying to achieve that particular day. Exercise is really probably the thing that helps the most, is intense physical exercise for at least 20 minutes um, to burn off some of that adrenaline. Connecting with other people is extremely helpful. And taking in information in manageable chunks is really important. So limiting the amount of time that you're exposed to information um, is really helpful. And the other way to go is, is actually to work through it, right? And when you start thinking about things that are terrifying, notice that you often don't go as far as you could to process how bad it will really be. And often if you go all the way, right, something like a car bomb explodes next to you and you burn alive, right? Which is like a horrific thing to contemplate. If you really think about the nitty gritty details of what that would be like, right? It's almost never as bad as the thing in your imagination, right? Because in that circumstance, you know, within 30 seconds, you'd be unconscious, right? And in the circumstance of COVID, you know, for a period of time, you would be suffering, but it's not an interminable period of time. Um, and the body is actually very gracious in allowing us to become sleepy or less conscious when we're in situations of extreme suffering. And that's on both sides, you know, for the people that are having to observe the suffering of somebody else, um, the mind sort of protects a little bit by not allowing us to take in more than we can actually handle before we shut down emotionally. I mean, obviously, it's a horrible thing. You know, it's a terrible thing to be losing people in this way. Um, but, but, but thinking your and feeling your way into the absolute worst moment, and realizing that almost any moment can be tolerated, um, even if the implications are terrible, um, can be very helpful actually for getting out of that what-if cycle, um, that constant sort of self-doubt and the anxiety goes up again and oh my god what if this and what if that that you were talking about so looking at the response to this pandemic in the united states 
how do you think it impacts people psychologically you know to be treated as if their lives are expendable you know and unnecessarily so and mostly you know referring to uh, people who are working without protection and now especially people who are being um, put in a position of uh, choosing either to go back to work or being thrown off of public service uh, or I mean uh, thrown off of uh, unemployment losing benefit their medical benefits because we don't have national health care if I was those workers I would be saying why why doesn't anyone care about me why am I being forced to do this and the, and the, I'm not being provided with adequate you know masks and gloves and protections uh, to ensure you know I'm going back to work but I feel expendable I, I feel like the powers that be don't care if I survive, if I live or die. Right. And, you know, I, I think you've pretty much said it, you know, it's morally, it's morally unconscionable. I mean, it's horrific that we are treating people as cogs in a machine to make money for us at a moment like this and that people are placing the profit above the value of their workers as if you can even do that right what do you think is going to happen when all the workers are dead right how profitable is your business going to be then i mean i think it's just it's just it's just horrific um in in the extreme that we're seeing it now where people are being told to work in obviously unsafe situations and you know doctors are being asked to work in ways that are literally like not based in reality right we're going to ask you to do something that has really good chance of getting you sick to the point that you die, right? We would never do that in an operating room or with an HIV positive patient or, you know, places where we, we would not put the caregivers at risk in that way. And yet somehow or other, that sort of reality check is missing right now. And, and it really is psychotic. And I think we have to sort of question our assumptions. I think on the positive level, you know, um, people are really waking up, I think, to things that have been going on in more subtle ways for a long time. Um, I think we've seen a gradual eroding of worker protections in this country, and um, as a country continued to place profit over, you know, the quality of people's lives. And um, so people are, this is like a visceral wake-up call, right, when they're being asked to do this kind of thing. No, I'm not going to be protected, so I have to look out for myself. And I think you're, you're seeing people start to do that, and, and there's a self-reliance in that, and um, uh, waking up to the dependency that you've placed yourself in, um, maybe without being aware of how vulnerable you were that, um, and, and how vulnerable to victimization in this case. Um, that is is kind of healthy that you're seeing in some situations. Um, so it, it cuts both ways, but I, you know I think it's an abomination that we're asking people to do these kind of things. You can't gaslight death. <laughs> exactly. You know? It also sort of wakes you up to the way in which we make these kind of trade-offs all the time, right? You know, in in taking risks with ourselves. Um, yeah. There's a lot of division, and I understand, you know, some of it's artificially fomented, and I get that, you know, playing off p 
people's imagined or concerns or you know legitimate or imagined concerns or f feelings of um, disempowerment um, but it's like every day we we're we're living in an abusive dysfunctional family where you know the parent figures are sometimes saying well go out there and try it you might die when, when you say to somebody, you can go into a situation and do something that we know in reality it's not possible to do, right? You're just not basing your comments in, in reality. Um, and so we have to be careful to check the assumptions that we're making. Um, you know, right now, if we open up, that deaths will continue to go down. You know, that may be kind of a crazy assumption. So you, you have to constantly check does this really make sense based on reality as we know it? Um, Some people reject what I might consider reality or facts. They just out of hand reject them and they choose to believe unproven random opinions that are presented as facts. You can't have a resolution with with people with those types of opinions because you're you're asking them to not believe what they believe well there's different there's there's belief and then there's sort of scientific fact you know and, and just making sure that you're distinguishing between the two is really helpful and important is this something that I'm doing because of a core belief that I have or is this something that I'm doing because this is really what um, measurable outcomes and measurable facts have shown us um, for example you know you can prioritize money over people but that's based on a belief right that economic su success is you know very important right um, you can also prioritize economic success over lives because of covid because you really believe based on studies that more people will die of suicide from poverty than will die of COVID. Now that that's not a fact. The last thing that I said, but you know, the people that are encouraging people to get back to work are worried about the consequences of extreme poverty, right? And and some of that is very reality based, right? And some of it is based on a belief system that says that, you know this is our way of life and this is what we believe in and we're not going to take other factors into consideration. Um, so I think also, you know, one thing I wanted to say is, mm -hmm. um, you know, it, it's easy to, to sort of maybe be a bit judgmental, but, um, you know, this is a really complicated thing to get your mind around. And in that way, it's very, very similar to climate change in the sense that it's kind of a hyper object, right? It's a virus that has multiple proteins, uh, multiple sensitivities to drugs, you know, multiple ways of affecting people m across an entire global community, you know, spread in ways that we're not clear about for how long we're not exactly clear, who gets sick and why we're not exactly clear. And so when you're trying to wrap your mind around something that is that much, um, that complicated and that much on the move, a moving target, um, you know, people are looking for little bits of information to try to grapple with it in a real way um, for good reason, you know, and, and they may be a little bit off, but then you revise and you try to get a little bit more accurate the next time. 
We're going to take a short break and then we'll be back with Dr. Beth Hawes, Associate Professor of Psychiatry at the University of Nevada at Reno School of Medicine. Today we're talking about uh, the pandemic, correlations between adapting to a new normal and uncertain future, uh, and uh, other similarities between climate change and the pandemic on our mental health. What are the similarities in terms of people's awareness and concern and, you know, the way uh, like climate change seems um, like undeniable at this point. Everybody knows that 
some it's changing in some way. Some people have no alarm about it whatsoever, um, and other people, of course, um, are very alarmed and want to do whatever possible to um, contribute to uh, healing our planet instead of continuing to pollute it. What similarities do you see between how people reacting to the pandemic and the way that they react to climate change? As we were just talking about, you know, climate change is an extremely complicated, diffuse problem, right, with many, many layers of complexity, many interdependent systems that you can't fully control. Um, and in that way, COVID is quite similar, right, because it depends on the behavior of people and you can't control all the behavior of people and it's a global problem um, and it's invisible in the way that climate change on a day-to-day -day basis is invisible and so it has quite, quite a few similarities. What is eco-anxiety and how is it different from other anxieties? Um, well eco-anxiety is uh, the term that people have used um, for distress about environmental issues so far and there are some sort of syndromes that have been identified um, one of them being solastalgia uh, which is a sort of nostalgia for the way the environment around you used to be um, it's like nostalgia for your home environment when you see your landscape changing things like that um, Eco-anxiety per se uh, is, would be considered um, worry about the environment that is disabling. But I think recently what we've seen is an attempt to pathologize people who have environmental distress and say that there's something wrong with them, that they're distressed about the environment. And actually, you know, particularly that, you know, parents are making life harder for their children by getting them all worked up about environmental concerns. And, um, I just want to say that that is you know, absolutely not correct and that every study that has ever been done shows that people that are distressed and worried about the environment have more pro-environmental behavior. They tend to be more social people. Um, they tend to be a little bit better problem solvers in general. Um, so. It, you know, it generally refers to distress about environmental things, um, but it's important not to pathologize it. It's just really grappling with the situation that we're facing. Do you think that there's a f kind of a fundamental lack of compassion in our society? <laughs> Big question. <laughs> Big question. You know, I, I saw a really beautiful article recently, the title's not coming to mind, um, you know, about how did we get here? How did we get to be a society that, that prioritizes profit, that believes that getting ahead is better than getting along with, um, um, that winning is better than sharing? You know, I think we've assumed a lot of things about what is going to make us happy and what it means to be a fully actualized person that this virus is really highlighting for us. Um, 
I mean, there's a lot of different types of people, right? There's some people's focus in their lives is, you know, more like maybe self-improvement, creativity, art, social, um, being with people. And, and some people's lives seem more focused, very focused on consumption, filling their needs with stuff and always planning their next acquisition. And I know people like that. I might even be related to people like that. <laughs> but this is very disruptive for that type of person. Um, what makes a person, or what can people do to be resilient um, in, in a situation like this? And, and climate change would, or environmental changes would fall into this category as well where yeah I mean we're not really seeing it in its entirety in the U.S. right now but I know other countries feel the environmental impacts of climate change in 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 um, being able to get food and water the basics um, we haven't experienced that our our concerns have been um, toilet paper um, now it's hamburgers <laughs> gloves and masks those are those are our pain points now um, but that could change so what what could people do to to be resilient to help their children to grow up with a resilience so that they are more adaptable and not I mean I understand why it's you know people cling to the way things are and were as you kind of referenced that's easy and comfortable and safe and you know what to expect except when something like this happens so so resiliency how how do people cultivate it well i think you know in kids um moral courage uh, the ability to speak up self-reliance uh allowing them to make mistakes and find solutions in situations where they haven't succeeded the first time. Social connectedness is extremely important for resilience. Extroversion is a quality of people that are resilient. You know, practical skills, knowing that, that you can garden or make things from nothing is a way of helping kids be more resilient. You know, those are the things that come to mind. I think engaging in sort of layered kinds of activities with other people is a way of building resilience um, so that you're not dependent on one particular outlet to give you social support. Um, talk a little bit about your work with, the in, um, with climate change, with the environment. Um, well, this is, a, this is a question that we had, right, actually was what can parents do with their kids to prepare them for the climate future? And our way of going about it was to ask people that had been leaders in climate for their answers, um, because I'm not sure that anybody really knows. And, you know, we spoke with a number of people, Joe Lieberman and Al Gore's daughter, Karina Gore, who runs the Union Theological Center on the Environment. And um, the answers that we got were to expose them to the beauty of nature and cultivate in them a sense of awe and respect for nature, cultivating a sense of attachment to the natural world and to animals um, so that they care about the world around them is really important, 
but I think that the unanswered question is, you know, what what allows somebody to look into a kind of mysterious future and and have the right kind of optimism, um, particularly when things might be a little bit difficult, to allow them to thrive. And that's a kind of hope, and people have been trying to define what kind of hope that is, um, and um, reasonable hope or active hope uh, in Joanna Macy's language, um, or radical hope in the language of Jonathan Lear. Um, reasonable hope is a concept from Helen Weingarten. Um, these are ways of modeling the process of remaining hopeful, um, even when you're facing something difficult, um, going through cycles of sort of accepting difficulty, reassessing where you are with it at that particular time, making a series of sort of calculated decisions about what some positive things might are that might be good to do um, and doing them with hope that they'll have some effect I think that a really big part of grappling with climate change and feeling that you're in the right place with it involves sitting with your own distress about it and your own sadness about it and your awareness of how dark it could be so that you can really grapple with the sense of loss and with that comes a kind of paradoxical freedom, right? To do and be exactly who you want to be in that moment when things are hard. Um, and when you're in a state of great loss, one of the things that is most helpful is to reference your underlying values. Um, what do you really care about? And that's where if you've been raised with like a deep attachment and concern for the world around you, you're likely to take care of it. Um, and be active in helping other people to take care of it. Um, so I think that's kind of a diffuse answer. I think another piece of the answer is is to be very clear that you should not be operating from a place of shame. Um, I think many people come to climate activism and concern about issues like this with self-doubt and with the feeling that they're complicit in the problem. Um, and that they don't know enough or they're, they're not strong enough in their ability to participate in the solution. And that kind of self-shaming is really not helpful. And appreciating that we're all sort of in this together in the sense that we're all waking up to whatever we can wake up to around us um, and seeing what we're able to see in the moment. And we're all sort of in the position of a child who's trying to learn a totally different way of life uh, than we're used to, that we grew up with, um, and and we can't really be blamed for not having gotten it completely yet, right? Um, it's a complicated problem, it's a difficult problem to address, it's a difficult thing to ad address your lifestyle adequately in our culture to make big differences, and slowly, slowly we have you know more opportunities to be successful in adapting to climate, um, and that's a very rewarding thing, but but blaming yourself for not having gotten there any faster than you did is, is just a way of sort of undermining your ability to feel positive about what you are doing. I think that's really, really helpful advice. Having um, spent a long time um, working with various nonprofits, social justice organizations, I think that you know there's a fine line between being helpful and being really righteous. 
and I think that it's intimidating for people you know when to, to like you said there's a lot of shame in in maybe um, feeling complicit or just not feeling like you're environmental enough <laughs> or, or whatever whatever enough you think you are not um, in comparison to others one way that I've been coping with this situation not really so much with environmental or climate change um, but with the pandemic is I keep going back to history or or um, just randomly let's say tyrants in history <laughs> also um, pandemics, tyrants, things that are harm that we see as harmful, you know. And when I think about pandemics, I think, well, after every pandemic, there's um, a timeline that you can see there was a renaissance or an industrial revolution or some great advances that came from it, mm -hmm. and that all tyrants throughout history died. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that's kind of like I go, I, I have to go all the way there, you know, and be like, nope, you know, it'll change. Maybe not in my life, but um, everything always does. And the environment's gone through a lot of changes as well. You know, we we have deserts where there used to be forests, and there wasn't any in industry that caused that. It just caused itself. I mean, change and impermanence, I mean, those are literally the only things you can count on, even more than taxes and coping with that or kind of surfing it you don't have to like it but I think acknowledging that historically everything's going to be okay maybe not in your life but you know looking at kind of maybe a longer timeline than just our small window um, of our immediate window or this year or next year um, I think that's helpful also because there is um, an under like you said facts and numbers they don't lie <laughs> And, and neither does history. Um, we, we see that repeatedly there have been various pandemics and we're more advantaged now than any other time because of technology and logistics and communications. Um, so, you know, I'm optimistic about um, this particular situation because of those things, even though I know there'd be a lot of damage in between. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a little tricky not to be angry when the information is there and people don't use it. I mean, if I were somebody whose family member had died um, because of the delays implementing a lockdown, I would be pretty furious, you know? Right. Um, and it's remarkable how quickly we are moving towards multiple vaccines around the globe and multiple medications and yeah. learning and sharing so much. I literally signed up for a Facebook group for doctors on a Friday with, I think, 3,000 members. By Monday, it was 13,000 members, and by a week later, it's 130,000 members of you know people in health professions sharing good information about this. I mean, it's just remarkable how helpful we can be to each other. But yeah, just to go back to what you said, I really like what you said about, you know, understanding that we're part of something that is bigger and longer um, than we are individually. And that can be a very peaceful place to be intellectually and emotionally. And I think um, uh, Maureen Adele is a psychologist who's actually written a book about this. She, she calls it The Five Gifts, um, and they are um, humility and empathy and patience and forgiveness and growth which are really about understanding yourself as being part of a process, right? 
um, and being a small part of that process. And I think Native American cultures have done a beautiful job of understanding the timeline and how we're all connected across generations into you know, worlds outside of ourselves. So there are many models in sort of indigenous cultures that are extremely helpful um, and can have a lot to teach us about how to be at peace um, with losing this uh, Western mentality of how far can I get in my lifespan. You know, about kids right now um, is, you know, we're learning a tremendous amount from what's happening with home learning and we're seeing that there are certain kids that are really thriving with home learning um, and those kids come in two categories uh, you know the first category is kids who have parents that can really help them whose parents are available emotionally and practically and educated and able to handle the challenges of homeschooling um, but the second category is kids who have some qualities that are being released by the freedom to learn in their own way um, in a slightly different way than they would learn in the classroom and you know artistic kids are probably in that group kids that are inhibited by anxiety in the classroom would be in that group but there also are some kids who are just running with things in a more open situation and I think it's really important to think about what qualities do those kids have because Whatever those qualities are, they are qualities that we want to look for going into the future with climate change. Boy, is that ringing home. <laughs> but the other thing that COVID brings out is like the, the divides are, that we have all the time are just getting worse. I mean, more dramatic. Um, you know, the kids who have parents that are able to help are able to you know leapfrog through this the kids that have parents who are flattened by it are falling even further behind you know every every divide in our society is heightened by this experience and i think that's something that we're likely to see we know we're going to see with climate change as well that the social justice issues are going to be profound really profound so you know one of i just want to um, add one of one of the interesting things that's kind of i've thought about during this time um, is my grandparents in the depression and they always had those those things their whole life that they brought with them from that experience I have such a greater understanding because I think about my grandparents and you know the behaviors you know they're putting little jellies in your purse <laughs> in your pocketbook um, you know from the restaurant nothing going to waste ketchup being a vegetable because of scarcity and I see that now. I see, you know, the the behaviors and the reactions of people with the, you know, kind of hoarding and um, that behavior of, you know, mm -hmm. buying over over consumption just in case. And and I mean, I can look at it and see. That, well, that's not really necessary. The supply chains are okay, and we're still even going to have hamburgers. They just might be more expensive. Um, and it and it shocks me too that you know hamburgers got put on the must go to work list way before the masks and the ventilators did. <laughs> like hamburgers were way more had more value. Um, I'm, and I'm only half joking about that, but <laughs> but I I really see that you know I I see that you know that same behavior that people that same reaction um, that people had and how quickly. It was so, so fast and so instant that people 
became terrified of um, of scarcity. Mm-hmm. You know, and it was like a and and the more people did it, the more other people became afraid of scarcity. It kind of it created its own kind of momentum, and mm-hmm. um, it's so unnecessary because there's still so much of everything. And even if we had to go without a little bit, it would not be the end of the world. But it feels like it to some people. It really does. Well, we have a million mechanisms cognitively to help us to panic in situations like this. <laughs> Um, but yeah, I like what you said about your grandparents, the resourcefulness, and we have a lot to learn from our elders on this one, you know? Life was a lot simpler. Not everything had been commodified the way it is today. Good Lord, no. My grandma had two purses, her her regular everyday pocketbook and then her fancier one, and she had like two pairs of shoes and, you know, a coat. And It's um, very freeing, yeah. Yeah, it is freeing um, to not to not be indentured by stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a great way of putting it. I really like that. Dr. Beth Haas, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Well, thank you. It's been a really interesting conversation. I really appreciate your thoughts. They're very, very reflective. Yeah, well, thanks for letting me do it. It was a pleasure. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. <laughs>
Listening to KBOO Portland. Bienvenidos a un breve informativo en su estación comunitaria KBOO 90.7 FM. Esta es una sección especial en español 